0: All right, for the rest of us, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? So I guess it wasn't as long as I made it out to be. Um, All
1: right, we are in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices his net and makes offering to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I, what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. For it, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collect as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, saying, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? and loads himself up with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity! Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing?' For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the vi- and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell to them, dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it—a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, "Awake!" to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him.
0: Thank you, Becca. This is the word of God. You may be seated. You ever wonder why I have my wife come out here and read to you the scripture before I preach on it? One of the things we're told to do in the New Testament is to commit ourselves to the public reading of God's word. Takes away my time, but that's okay because it's God's time. And we should commit ourselves to the public reading of God's word. Well, we are in Habakkuk. And no, I did not sneeze. That is the prophet's name. Um, Habakkuk is a... Um, is part of the minor prophets. They are called the minor prophets not because their message was unimportant or because they were not quite 18. Um, It's because um, their book is much smaller. I know, this is a ridiculous joke, right? But uh, it's because their uh, their books, their documents are much smaller than the others like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, Habakkuk is a unique book in that it starts off with the author complaining to God. I hope you've never been so frustrated with God that your prayer life seems like you're just complaining, complaining, complaining. I think all of us have felt that way maybe in our life. Habakkuk is unique. Habakkuk is unique in that it starts off with the author complaining to God. There are a couple of the psalms that start off this way, but there's not many books. It's in this complaining that God answers. Habakkuk's complaint is about his own nation, the nation of Judah. It's filled with violence, lawlessness and perversion. And he's wondering, why isn't God doing anything? One thing we should note about Habakkuk is Habakkuk is complaining to God, not about God towards others. There's a major difference. Some people will, be, will talk about like, well, we need to talk about the, the issues we're having or whatever, but watch out that you're not defaming the one who bought you by his blood. When we complain, when we complain to God, it encourages our faith. God is then the the physician of our souls is able to heal what we are exposing. We are just complaining about God. It encourages doubt. Um, When we complain to God, that actually encourages our faith. For the faithful, as we will see in chapter 3, will live by faith. Why do bad things happen? Why do good things happen to bad people? In the first dialogue, Habakkuk is split into a dialogue between the prophet and God. In the first dialogue, his complaint really is summarized this way. Why do good things happen to bad people? Now, we often hear that the other way around. Why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? But that only happened once, and he volunteered. You know, Jesus Christ, he's the only perfect, only good person who's ever lived. When a man came to Jesus and he called him good teacher, Jesus said back to him, why do you call me good? Only, save, only, only God alone is good. Now, of course, the guy didn't realize he's speaking to God alone. It's a, it's a great moment where the guy just has no clue what he's talking about, but Jesus does. And uh, so only God alone is good. So the only person, only good person where bad things happen to is Jesus Christ, and he volunteered for it. I think what, what, what really gets us is when we see wicked, evil people prospering. Psalm 73 is all about this. It deals, it deals with this in such a profound way, in a way that when we read it, we're like, is this in the scriptures? Chapter one of Habakkuk kind of feels that way. In Psalm 73, the psalmist sees the prosperity of the proud. Then he thinks about his own miserable existence and it almost breaks him. I remember in high school watching Schindler's List. I don't really recommend the movie. There's much more objectionable content in it than just the Holocaust, which is obviously very objectionable. But anyway, we're watching in in high school Schindler's List and I, at this time, I had read, I don't know how many books, you know, probably 10 to 20 books on the Holocaust. It was just something that, well, I mean, obviously it's one of the most wretched things to happen in all of human history. It's one of the things I wanted to make sure I was as tender towards. And um, I remember watching this in high school. And the thing that really made me see red, got me really upset, is when I saw the the German, the Nazi commanders and captains sitting in their nice little area, warm, well-fed and drinking wine while these poor Jewish people were suffering, starving and dying. It really bothered me. I think it really bothers us too. When justice is perverted, why isn't God doing something? That is the prophet's complaint. Why isn't God doing something in my nation when he sees justice being perverted? When he sees violence, I cry violence and he does nothing. Do you Ever not understand God? Are you ever consumed with confusion and it becomes hard to even pray? If so, I think you should read Psalm 73 in Habakkuk. Questions and answers. The prophet actually gets an answer to his question. Many people will say that there isn't a lot of answers and they're just dead wrong. I mean, there's a point where we are overcome with grief where we won't take the the answer. But there's answers to every question. And most of, these, most of them are, are very, very apparent, very clear. We ask God, why did this happen? After we get some distance, we realize, okay, I understand perfectly why this happened now. You know, there's that, there's that saying, everything happens for a reason. And I saw this on somebody's marquee that said, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason, reason is that you're stupid and you make bad decisions. Habakkuk gets an answer. And the answer is this. God is like, I do see, and I am doing something. And he even has the, he has the great, great thing to say to Habakkuk, which is, I'm about to do something that you won't even believe. His answer is that he is raising up the Babylonians to conquer Judah. The answer to, Habakkuk, to Habakkuk's first complaint to God is something he wouldn't expect, we wouldn't expect. God doesn't tell Habakkuk to mind his own business but that he, God, is doing something, something the prophet wouldn't believe. That, of course, is the destruction of the prophet's own country by the Babylonians. God describes them as bur- uh, bitter and hasty people. Insert Black Friday shopper joke here. This, jo- this, this leads to the prophet's second complaint, and that's what Becca read for us today in uh, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. In verse 12, um, he starts off by appealing to God's nature. He says he is eternal. He is holy. He uses the proper name of God, the covenant name of God, represented in our English translations in your Old Testament. If you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all capitals, it is God's covenant name with his people. The Tetragrammatron pronounced Yahweh. It is God's covenant name for his people. It's a very good idea for the prophet if you're trying to make a plea for the people of God's covenant, remember, remind God of his covenant name. The second part of the verse is remembering that, as it, that it is God's nature that he can't break a covenant he made. So he says the phrase that they will not surely die. He even understands the need for judgment and reproof, but he understands, and it is true, the remnant will not die. They will persevere throughout this calamity. In verse 13, the prophet refers to God's pure eyes, that God cannot look upon evil. Once again, appealing to the nature of God and the heart of his confusion. The heart of his confusion is this if God's eyes are pure, he cannot look upon evil, then why can he look at traitors and why can he look at the Babylonians and use them to punish people who are more righteous than they are? It's like the prophet even understands the reason for correction, reason for discipline. And he agrees with it, but why use the Babylonians? It's like, Judah's bad enough, but man alive, Babylon is much worse. So he's in utter confusion. His confusion's only exasperated by the the Lord's words. So his complaint isn't even the severity of Judah's judgment, but it's using a nation more wicked than themselves to do it. This is very much like when people want to gossip to me and they will say it this way to make it themselves sound spiritual. I know I'm not perfect, but at least I don't. X, Y, and Z. Somebody that they want to, they want to berate. It's, uh, um, I don't know if I should use this example or not, um, but it's like on Greece when Rizzo wants to, when she wants to talk bad, she has her little song about at least she's not uh, Olivia, um, Olivia Newton-John's character, whatever her name was. We all have somebody we can compare ourselves to that we think we're better than. Let me tell you something. The only person God's comparing us to is Jesus Christ. In verses 14 through 16, the prophet uses this um, great metaphor about the nation of Babylon and about fishermen. They are not Peter, James, and John, but this guy, both the nation and their king, that is Babylon, they are fishers of men. This is in the most evil sense. Taking men, women, and children away from their homes and enslaving them for their own profit. 14 through 16, this metaphor is talking about what they would do. Go into a nation, take the people away, take everybody away, including their most precious resource, their own children, their future. So that is what all the talk about the dragnet he sacrifices to his dragnet. He becomes wealthy from it. How long will this go on? Will this go on forever? Forever. It reminds me very much of the man-selling slavery that occurred in the 17th and 18th century. In the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, he said this, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago. So still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In verse 17 is the prophet's question before he decides to wait for God's answer. A paraphrase of it might be this, is there justice anywhere? Will this go on forever? This was one of the Jewish explanations of the Book of Jonah. Why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh is because he is because they believed that he believed that the Ninevites deserve to die. they deserve to be punished for their sins. will there they may escape justice in this life, but will they not receive justice in the next, or will injustice reign forever i 'm going to uh, like a movie from the 90s, I am not going to go in order in explaining this scripture. I am saving verses 1 through 4 um, for my the body of my message today. So I'm actually going to be uh, in my introduction going over verses 6 through 20, but don't worry, I'm going to kind of go over them quickly so I can get to the body of my message verses 1 through 4. Because ver- verses 1 through 4 is how we get to chapter 3. Chapter 1, the prophet Habakkuk, he is distressed. He is angry. He's complaining to God. Chapter three, he's praising God. And nothing changes with the circumstance. Verse one through four, though, will tell us everything we need to know how you go from shouting in anger to shouting in praise and thanksgiving. Verses um, six through 20, we have five woes. Remember, a woe is prophetic language of a curse. These curses are specifically to Babylon's king, more generally to Babylon's people, and even more generally to anybody who might find themselves in the same circumstance, even in in their heart. Our first woe is a woe against aggression. This is verses six through eight. They paint the picture of a person on slippier ground than they thought. They have debtors aplenty. One day they will wake up and this guy will have to give an account other nations will do to Babylon what Babylon is about to do to Judah. As Matthew Henry said in his commentary, pay them back using their own coin. The second woe is in verses 9 through 11 and is referencing the person who builds their life on dishonest gain. It seems right and it seems prosperous, but it all comes to ruin. It is like the person who steals from their job who's embezzling. And they think, man, my, my job, they're never going to know. They're a bunch of idiots. And then when they're found out, terror grips them. Because now it will not just be money that they have to pay back, but perhaps their own liberty. And they have this, they have this hanging over their head. No wonder for so many charlatans of the past, they say the best night of sleep they ever got was the first night in prison because now people finally know what they were about. Second woe is a, a woe against dishonest gain. While I do believe it's entirely possible for somebody to live a dishonest life and only pay for it when they come before the judgment seat of Christ, personally, I have never known the person who lives by dishonesty to reap anything other than dishonesty in return. It is like an unconscious permission to the people around you when you live in dishonesty for them to treat you dishonestly. Woe against violence, verses 12 through 14. There is no such thing as the ends justify the means. We tell ourselves this. We think, well, we have to break some eggs in order to make an omelet. But there is no child who cries out that God does not hear and that God does not remember. People who live for violence will see violence when they don't want to. Verse 14, however, is a great verse. And it points to something beyond Judah and Babylon, something more glorious, looking forward to a time when the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our God as water covers the sea, so his glory will come. The fourth woe is a war, a woe against prideful humiliation. Verses 15 through 17. Remember when God in, the, God in this last chapter, he talks about Babylon, he says, they scoff at kings and they honor only their own strength as their own God. Here's a woe for the person who humiliates others in their rage. It is a woe for the person who it's not enough just simply to win in life. You have to insult others. You have to humiliate people around you. Babylon added so much insult to injury by taking their young people to their land, forcing them to speak their language, giving them new names. And God likens this to a person like giving somebody alcohol. And so much alcohol, they lose all their senses and they take their clothes off and they make fun of them for it. He likens this to their very rage. So it's not even done even in jest, but in a mean, terrible way. So much like our concept of bullying today. We know that in high schools and stuff like that, that's always a topic about bullying, but there's bullying as we become adults. In James Austin's book, Emma, um, You know, I I often say that if you get all my references, you've had to have like grown up with me. Um, So here's one for you that's not so recent, but Jane Austen's book, Emma. Emma, um, she's, she has all this other stuff going on in her life. She's always getting involved in other people's business and um, she's, she's, she's kind of coming back at her and she feels kind of dejected. She has all her friends around and there's this gal named Mrs. Miss Bates. Miss Bates is an older spinster who has nothing. And And uh, somebody proposes a game and Emma thinks this is a great time to put down her friend and humiliate her in front of everybody. There's there's, like people who seem worse in the book than Emma, but that one makes you kind of go like, how could you be so mean to somebody? This woe is for the person who takes joy in humiliating others. Don't be surprised when God brings about this humiliation for you. What strikes me so much on this woe is the way God describes in the, the way that he will bring about this humiliation, verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his drink, his neighbor's drink, neighbor's drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drink drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Here's what makes me, like, it's, it's hard for me to go on. We understand Babylon and how terrible they were that they filled up that cup themselves. Their violence, their mockery, they filled it up and it would be righteous and good for them to drink it. Before Christ went to the cross, he said to the Father, let this cup pass from me. This is the cup. This is the cup because in Hebrews it said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Scorning its shame. Christ drank Babylon's cup. He, and he drank yours and mine. Because believe it, we deserve the cup as well. Every thought, thoughtless care, word, and deed, that's how it, the cup is filled up. Every time we made fun of somebody, that's how the cup is filled up. Every time we lied, every time we stole, every time we said an unkind word, we filled up that cup and we should drink it until we are drunk and exposed. But Christ drank it and on the cross he was exposed in every way, shape and form. That's verse, that's woe number four. Woe number five is verses 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 20. It's a woe against idolatry. How stupid are idols? As a race, we set our hopes in things that aren't even real. Babylon looks to wooden images. However, we look to glass screens and bow down. We Google before we pray, and that says everything. The second dialogue is all about waiting. Habakkuk is waiting for God to make sense. God is telling to Habakkuk, and he's telling us to wait on this prophecy. The prophecy is much more than the destruction of an empire. It's much more than that. It points to Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard the phrase before, wait on the Lord? Sometimes we use it as a cliché as a way of trying to be like, I don't know what to say, just wait on the Lord. Let me tell you what wait on the Lord means. It doesn't mean that you just sit there and stew in your own anxiety and worry just to let your troubled mind stew and become bitter. This dialogue actually tells us in verses one through four what it means to wait on the Lord. So my introduction was like everything and my body is verses one through four because one through four is the lichpin? It is the center of how you go from shouting in anger to shouting in triumph. You wait patiently. You wait from a watchpost, and you wait and you wait from the cross, waiting patiently. Not one of my favorite topics. I don't know about you. Not very many people like waiting. Beck and I was what we watching this science fiction show the other day called Doctor Who. And the doctor uh, in there, it had this. I told Becca, I'm putting that in my message tomorrow. Um, Somebody tells the doctor, you said said we had to wait. We had to be patient. And the doctor says back, yes, you, not me. I hate being patient. Patience is for wimps. I can't live like this. Don't make me. I need to be busy. I'm like, was that the doctor or was that me? (laughs) Waiting patiently is an act of the will. Verse 1, I will take my stand on on my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answer me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow wait for it. Are you waiting for something today? How do you wait? How do you patiently wait? What does that even mean? It's an act of the will. Wait patiently is an act of the will. God gives you patience and you choose whether or not you will use it or lose it. Habakkuk in verse one says that he will wait for for an answer and will be ready to answer in kind his complaint. God starts off his oracle with, if it seems slow, wait for it. This is something to do. It is not not the absence of action. It will come in its own time. We know the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. Jesus waits patiently as he prays until his sweat falls like drops of blood. Patience and the fruit of the Spirit. I have often said before, I'm not a patient man, but I shouldn't say such things because it's not true. It's not right. I was not a patient person. I, it's better to say I was not a patient person, but God saved me. He redeemed me, and he is now working patience into my life. When you come to Christ, there was a lot of things people could say about you. Just, not, just don't be late for, just not late for supper. But after Christ, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's about time God's elect stop trying to bring charges against God's elect. I am not saying that you've arrived, and neither have I, but the work of the Holy Spirit should be evident in your life. You know how the work of the Holy Spirit is evident in your life? It's not because you use the spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues and prophecy. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Are you growing in these? Do people see you growing this? Maybe you you yourself don't see it because growth is so, it seems so small. It's like when we were growing up and our parents maybe did the line thing and then we think like, okay, I haven't grown at all. And then you look, it's like, I've grown a foot. Some of you have grown too much this last year and you need to settle down. I mean, all of a sudden, you're little men and women and I'm like, what's going on here? The Holy Spirit work should be evident in your life. You see, patience is part of the fruit of the spirit. If you are truly in Christ and not in rebellion, rebellion, then you are going to be more patient. You actually, you don't get so much of a choice in that other than whether or not you will use it. I'm always amazed when I see this happening in in me. There'll come a point where I know in the past, I couldn't have taken this. Somebody was working that last nerve and they got it. You know, we have the phrase. I used to use this phrase all the time in the treatment center I was a counselor in. And I'd say, they're just trying to get your goat. And they didn't know what that meant. They're like, I don't have a goat, Mr. Fisher. (laughs) I'm like, that means your temper. It means your patience. They're trying to get that away from you so you get in trouble and they don't get in trouble. You don't really have a goat. And I don't know where you'd keep it if you had one. (laughs) Goats are adorable though in pajamas. I just want to say that. Um, They want to get your goat. You decide whether or not you're going to do this. I'm always amazed in my own life when it seems like somebody's about to get my goat, but then all of a sudden something comes upon me and I have joy in the moment and I can endure it with great joy and happiness even when somebody's being difficult. I I, I saw this so much when I was a youth pastor. Certain things that would just drive me nuts early on, I could take. And then, you know, it's hard then not to have a self-righteous attitude when you see impatience in others. So one thing that would always bother me is that people would have infinite amount of patience for kids until they became teenagers and then no patience. And then for teenagers, we treat them kind of like young, we treat, we treat them like small adults. And uh, it was hard not to be self-righteous in that because there was certainly a time where I did the same thing. But this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It causes us to grow in, this, in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Look at Job. You know, he could have been considered a man of sorrows, but he was not the man of sorrow. Job 23, 9 and 10. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. I can't imagine waiting the way that Job had to wait, where he says, I know my Redeemer lives. Job didn't wait perfectly either. He waited probably better than any of us will ever wait, but he didn't wait perfectly. In fact, he says a lot of crummy things about the Lord, and the Lord confronts him on it. But Job was justified not by what he did, but because of whose he was, because of his faith. And at the end of Job, Job will, God will tell Job to pray for his friends because Job honored him when his friends would not. Painting, uh, sorry, uh, patient, um, waiting patiently is active. It is not passive. <coughs> two years ago and two months and a few days is when we heard the news that um, our governors and our president was going to shut down most of our nation, that only things that were essential. I remember during that time, I was doing these little uh, videos during the weekday. And one of the times I said, don't waste this time. Don't waste this time. Find something to do that will make you more like Jesus Christ. Grow in the fruit of the Spirit. I have to be so thankful and publicly thankful that one of the things that God laid on my heart was to get off social media during this time. Because in social media, you saw people who were not waiting, who were not patiently waiting on the Lord. They were waiting like Israel when Moses went up to the mountain. And they said to themselves, He'll never come back. Let's make a God for ourselves and you saw such vileness on social media. I'm so glad that the Lord protected me from that. Verses 2 and 3 we have the command write it down. Habakkuk himself said that he would go to the watchpost, he would go, he would go on the ramparts to watch to wait for the for the for the reply of the Lord. We are to be active in our waiting. In our waiting we should be praying, contemplating and meditating. We have a job while we wait. There is a parallel for, for us and Habakkuk here in that, um, in that he has to get the word out. That is one of the things that God tells him. Write it on tablets so that people can read it while they're running. So obviously the idea is get this word out. We have a job. Get the word out. And we have the other half of Habakkuk's message. This is only one half, which is judgment for evildoers. We have the other half, which is grace. That God has made a way, that there is one, Babylon may have filled the cup, you may have filled the cup of God's wrath, but there is one who has drank this cup if you but believe and if you'd repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The waiting patiently, patiently means we lay down the weight that we know or need to know everything. It's refusing to try to judge God. You ever find yourself maybe doing that? You're like, God, why is this going on? And maybe you think to yourself, maybe he's not quite as loving. Waiting patiently means I'm going to lay that down. Tim Keller says, it's laying down the weight of presumed omniscience. It's refusing the anxiety that comes from having to justify or even understanding everything in God's plan. So much of God's plan you don't get, to get, you don't get to get told because it's none of your business. And God deals with that person the way they, he, he deals with them. And we have a trust that that is what God is doing. It's so hard when that other person is somebody we love. But we can wait patiently. We can wait in peace if we lay down the need to justify what we think we're seeing. Two, we wait on the watch post. We wait on the watch post. I like the KJV translation. Um, Instead of watch posts, it has ramparts. I have no particular reason for this other than ramparts is kind of an old timey word that we have in the national anthem. On the ramparts we watched so gallantly streaming. Both of these are things you stood on in the middle of a battle so you could get a better view of the battle. Commanders stand on the ramparts. Commanders are in the watch post so they can get a better idea of what is going on. Several so of you were in the military and you were probably given orders and you're like, this is just crazy. Are they just messing with me? And maybe your CEO was messing with you. I don't know. But the idea is that they have more information than you. They see things from a higher perspective than you see things. All of these things are better are a better point of view in the battle. So often our biggest, so often that's our biggest problem. We have a small view. We have a right in front of us view instead of a view at 35,000 feet. We ask God why, but if we got up on the watchtower or in the rampart, we'd see already why. This is an act of the mind. The last is, the, the previous one's an act of the will. This one is an act of the mind. Part of the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your mind. Waiting on the watchtower is changing our perspective and is an act of the mind. Habakkuk says that he will do this, but it's God who does it for him. By the end of the prophecy, Habakkuk will understand in a way he never did before, and it will cause praise and thanksgiving. Before I mention Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms ever, because it starts off so genuine, so real, but it doesn't just end there. It just doesn't end with complaining. He talks about how he, that God is good, that God is good to Israel, but for him, he almost slept. He almost walked away when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, but it doesn't stop there. For in verse 17, it says this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Things look differently until you go into the sanctuary of God, until you get alone with the father. And you understand the Father's will for you. Things change. I mean, not even the circumstance changes, but you change. You get stronger in your faith. You're able to endure much more than you ever thought you could when you are in the sanctuary of God. It's no joke then why the devil does everything he can to keep you out of the sanctuary. To the prophet's credit, While he doesn't understand, he's even upset and angry about it. He stays in a position ready to hear from God. Are you in a position ready to hear from God? Or has the devil devil made it so where you are numb from entertainment and other things to where these things don't bother you? Are you in a position to hear from God, ready to go into the sanctuary of God? You know what I mean by that? Not simply coming to church on Sunday, But that because God has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts, we are now the Holy of Holies. At any point in time, you can be in a crowd, you can be by yourself, you can enter into the Holy of Holies. The place that the high priest could only go once a year, you can go at any point in time. Do you know that's why the devil fills your life with so much busyness? He doesn't want you waiting patiently. He doesn't want you waiting from a higher perspective. He wants you waiting in anxiety and fear so that you forget, I can go to a place where I can receive help and grace, For I can approach the throne of grace with confidence. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says this, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know who wrote that? A guy named Paul the Apostle. Remember me talking about how bad Jesus was whipped before his execution? Paul had that twice. He probably didn't walk right because his spine was messed up. You remember, like, I mean, I remember, if you've ever seen a movie like Spartacus or Gladiator, you have these people fighting wild animals. He did that in Ephesus. He was shipwrecked a day and a night. Okay, I was one time on a small lake in a paddle boat during an okay-sized storm, and I was terrified. <laughs> he was on the ocean a day and a night. He all of this affliction, and he says, in fact, there's a, in fact, there's this time where he says that they despaired him to the point of death, and he says, for this light momentary affliction. Wow. You can't say that if you don't have a view, if you don't have the view of Christ. Amen. You don't have the view of Christ. I've seen people who live Life of such privilege and pleasure live in utter turmoil of heart, because their perspective is only on the things they don't have. You probably have two. you know you just turn on TLC right? and you see just tons and tons of people like that. my super sweet 16, Dad didn't get me the pink Mercedes. my life is terrible. When you have a perspective of Christ, though, it changes things. you know, Paul wasn't the Terminator. He he actually talks about despairing to the point of death. But when he gets into the tower, when he gets into the rampart, it just seems light and momentary. There's something far better that makes the other stuff look just petty. And that takes me to the third point. It's verse four. Behold uh, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And so we only have half of one verse here. But the righteous shall live by his faith. That one phrase right there, it's one of those things where you read over it or whatever, but when you get a hold of it, it changes your life. The New Testament writers, they got a hold of this verse, and it's like it changes the way you see your whole world when you realize that it's not about what I do, it's about whose I am that makes all of the difference. It's not about striving to be perfect, but it's about accepting the one who is perfect. And now the law of God is my delight. It's not my terror that one day I will be judged for it. My righteous one will live by faith. We wait from the cross. The New Testament writers will take this half of the verse and they will expound upon it. Romans 1.17 For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, quote, the righteous shall live by faith. In Hebrews 10.38, second half of the verse. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Verse 4, or more specifically the second half of verse 4, is one of those unassuming verses that will blow your mind when you understand it. Verse 4 will be quoted by New Testament writers and explained in the wider and nearest context possible. Righteousness comes from faith. The five woes can be applied to a lot of countries, to a lot of peoples, and to a lot of people. Some of it to all people. But there is one whose righteousness was absolute. He was tested in every way, and he was without fault. It is the one who drank the cup in our place. When you wait, preach the gospel to yourself. Wait from the cross. Remember that your righteousness isn't something you do, but because of whose you are. That while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. So in all things, we wait from the cross with our eyes fixed on Jesus. All of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Not so much in a one-to-one comparison, but there's a scarlet thread throughout every verse of all of Scripture that leads to the very heart of Jesus Christ. All of this is true about Babylon and Judah, and everything the Lord says will take place, but the righteous will live by faith. Sometimes there's something that happens in our life, there's something coming up, and we're like, God, I don't understand, but you don't have to understand. You can wait patiently. You can wait from a higher point of view, but you wait from the perspective of Jesus Christ. Say, yes, I don't understand. And I can lay that down. It's what causes Habakkuk in the next chapter to go from, to go around singing, even though nothing has changed. His joy, his peace, his center is the Lord. Worship team, would you come up at this time? The book of Habakkuk is all about the Lord teaching his prophet that nothing gets to be his source except for God himself. Judah was the righteous of the two kingdoms. The kingdom itself was promised by God to be his kingdom. People plucked out from the earth to bless all nations, and now it'll be destroyed If Habakkuk's hope was on anything other than God, there's no reason for there to be rejoicing because Judah itself will be destroyed. God will not let anything or anyone be your source other than him. Your source of joy, peace, and love can only come from him. In this book, we see the prophet so burdened about his country. His country can't be his source though. It's a poor God. It's not what brings him peace in chapter 3. Chapter 2 doesn't give a stay of execution for Judah. Everything God says he will do. And finally, God mocks idols, and he mocks yours too. I heard a friend say to his congregation, he was preaching, and he said, you make a God out of your children. I'm glad he said it, and not me. Because if I would say it, I would probably point out how when somebody's kid comes to them and they come out as homosexual, transgender, all of a sudden their theology changes. Yeah. So then who's the God in your life? Yeah. And if I was to say that, I might point out how, uh, how all of a sudden if your kids aren't acting the way you want them to, you despise them, they might be your God. I might say, I might say that if your kid can do nothing wrong and when the teacher tells you they're, they're doing all these things, you're like, not my little Timmy. They might be a God in your life. That's a hard one, isn't it? That even the good things, the blessings in our life, if we put on them the weight of God, we will crush them under it. And that by giving up our idols, it frees us to love better than before. But if we make even good things in our life, the blessings in our life into an idol, we destroy them under the pressure of an expectation that they cannot fulfill. How inadequate are the gods that we make? Comfort is not peace. Excitement over the latest iPhone is not joy. Ministry is not joy. This is something that if I ever get to preach at a Bible college, I'm going to so just heap on people. Because when I was in Bible college, that's the thing I do. It's like when I get in ministry someday, then things are going to be good. I remember when I had a period of waiting, I'm like, finally, if I get into ministry, all of my problems will be taken away. Then I get into ministry and nope, not at all. I mean, I love being in ministry, don't get me wrong. Oh, I love it. I've never worked a job in my life though that on Monday I have to remind myself of the promises of God or I fall into a deep depression. I've never worked a job in which... um, The cares of an entire congregation are on my shoulders. Ministry is not my joy. Music is not my peace. And affirmations are not love. The righteous live by faith. And they receive their reward from the one who gives the faith. So in summary, there's so many things for us to wait for. Primarily, it's the second return of Jesus Christ. But there's other things in our life that we just, we will be in a state of waiting. but in our waiting, we one, we wait patiently. We give up, we, we lay down the, the, the presumed omniscience to have to understand everything. We wait from a higher place. We see things from a different perspective. We see what God is doing in and through our life and through the lives of others. And three, we wait with Christ in our vision. And we realize that the ultimate work of everything in our life is to see other people know Jesus Christ. That's kind of hard when somebody's being a jerk though, right? That we want them to see Jesus. I remember one of the things, a hard, hard lesson that Christ taught me when I was a high schooler is that if I was upset with somebody, I needed to pray for them and I needed to say something kind to them from my heart. I couldn't just like be like, Hey, nice glasses today. It's one of the things that God continually puts on my life. To, so I remind myself who the true enemy is. It's not that person. that I need to pray for them. And I need to share with them something about them that I love. Not the easiest thing in the world to do. But it it's waiting with Christ in my vision. That the ultimate work of what I want to see on this world is Christ be famous and not my own fame. So my challenge for you today is give up trying to judge God's plans. 2. Look at your problems in the light of eternity and of the present present blessings you already enjoy. 3. Remember that you have a savior. The worship team is going to lead us in a our final song. This is our chance to respond to the message today. If you'd like prayer, the altars are open. I'd be happy to pray with you. Would you all please stand as we as we end in our last song.